0: Welcome to Her Majesty and Rite of Pod. Once again, we're high above the Rideau River. My name's Craig Forces. I am joined, as always, by Stephanie Carvin. And today we welcome to the show Philip LaGasse, our colleague here at Carleton University. We're departing from our standard focus on the matters of national security law and broadening our ambit a bit, as promised in our first podcast of the season, to talk about broader issues around public law governance in uh, a Westminster democracy. So, Stephanie, what are we talking about today?
1: What we're talking about today is this little thing called Brexit. There was a pretty momentous decision in the UK today, today being, of course, September 24th. But we also, with this podcast, want to kind of provide listeners, our regular intrepid podcast listeners, some understanding of what grounds national security law. We have often talk about constitutional principles and ideas, but we really have never really talked about where that actually comes from. As a part of trying to improve understanding of national security law, we wanted to kind of look at the foundations of the system upon which it is built. So we have brought in Bill Lagasse, who is, of course, well known as one of the best uh, constitutional and crown powers experts in Canada. And of course, Craig, you have a specialty in public law and administrative law. And my contribution to this podcast is that I'm from Oshawa. And I'm going to make sure we all stay on track (laughs) and that we're speaking uh, not just the Queen's English, but English English. um, So we can all understand because I've been in a conversation with you guys when you go for it. And wow, it is something. But that being said, you guys have such great knowledge of the history and foundations of our system, which play into everyday uh, important decisions and issues in the government. So what an opportunity we have to kind of really dive into this. This is going to be super nerdy, guys, uh, but we're going to try and make it a little interesting, too.
0: Great. Great. So, Phil, why don't you start us off here? And and so, of course, as as Stephanie alluded to, we have this decision from the United Kingdom Supreme Court. People can find it online. It's an elegantly written, 25-page decision, uh, written in a manner that I think is very, very accessible, which is quite unusual for sort of a very complicated and convoluted area of public law. But what is the most important aspect of this decision, in your view, just as
2: a way of sort of contextualizing the beginning of our conversation here? Well, it has to do with a little thing called prerogative powers um and how they can be reviewed by the courts and the role of the courts in ensuring that they're exercised properly so before we get into that first off thanks for for having me and including me as part of her majesty and right pod i'm very excited to to be able to do this in the uh, stellar uh, intrepid podcast so thank you to all to have uh, me here and to include me but um getting back to the to the substance of it uh really it's like power
1: in politics but in my office exactly right. it's, it's wonderful <laughs>
2: uh I think the, the crux of the matter was, going into this case, whether or not uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson could prorogue Parliament in order to advance his goal of trying to trigger a no-deal Brexit uh, by 31 October in spite of opposition to that plan in the House of Commons. And generally speaking... Uh, The idea, at least, and as we've discussed in the, I mean, Craig, uh, in different circumstances in the Canadian context, the idea that advice to the Queen to prorogue parliament uh, would typically not be something that the courts would review. They would consider it a matter of politics, a political question that they wouldn't really look at, let alone uh, rule on whether or not it's advice you give to the Queen is lawful or not. And what's really striking in this case, uh, and it'll be something that uh, I expect that we'll talk about at greater length in, f- in a future episode, but it's the fact that not only did the court find that this the exercise of this power was reviewable by the courts, but they also declared that the ordering council um, that the Queen approved was unlawful, and effectively that the prorogation of Parliament was null and void, which is pretty striking.
0: So this case really uh, grapples with what we would call in public law context, separation of powers, the relationship between, on the one hand, the legislature in the form of parliament, the executive, both in terms of the role of the prime minister, but also the relationship between the prime minister and the monarch, and then also the role of the courts and how they interface one with the other. And also embedded in this conversation are other principles that I'm sure we're going to have to talk about. And so there's another concept that is fleshed out in some discussions around this case, and and as mentioned also in the case of parliamentary supremacy or parliamentary sovereignty, all these are features of the constitutional fabric of the United Kingdom. So why, Phil, if we're talking on a podcast whose primary listenership is Canadian, should we be concerned with these principles that are part and parcel of the UK constitutional arrangement?
2: Well, I think the answer, Craig, ultimately comes down to one line that we have in the Constitution Act 1867 of Canada, which states that we will have a constitution similar in principle to the United Kingdom. And nested in that line is a long, convoluted, fascinating history of an evolution of a system that dates from the Middle Ages to today that, as we currently saw Today, 24 September 2019, the United Kingdom continues to evolve and continues to really uh, be a a very dynamic relationship between medieval institutions of the crown, parliament, the courts, and those that advise the queen, uh, her council. And to my mind, this is really to understand that the Canadian system, yes, we had confederation in 1867, but the system that we have, we inherited from a much longer tradition, and those institutions uh, have been in in a constant dialogue and evolution together over nearly a thousand years. So it's to dive into that a little bit.
0: So I, maybe you would agree with the, the uh, one of, I think you do because we've had this conversation before. When 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 one approaches public law, the, the propensity I think for a lot of say law students is to assume that there's a lot of logic and theory that undergirds the public law system. I've always preferred what Oliver Wendell Holmes said about law that the life of the law is history, not logic. And I think there's no better representation of that than the Canadian public law system. It's a tangled uh, bundle of principles and and institutions that we've inherited, overlaying with some written constitutional provisions in the 1867 Act, largely uh, principles that you can't apply literally in the sense if you read them, uh, you'll be uh, misguided as to how things actually work. And then more recently, the constitutionalization of rights, for example, in the Charter of Rights and Freedom. So there's a whole... Uh, archaeological dig that one has to engage in for purposes of understanding public law. So one of the things I think we want to do, Stephanie, is, is excavate several layers so that people understand the sort of broader context, which you're right, situates important principles of, of national security law. Not least, Phil, you started off by talking about the prerogative, the royal prerogative, which is quite a, a, an anemic and limited source of power now for our officials, is disproportionately important in some of the areas that we discuss on this podcast, including defense, the royal prerogative of defense and over foreign affairs. And so we want to be able to situate that conversation.
1: Okay, well, you know, I'm going to use my role here as the Oshawa person to basically take us back to ground zero. Um, Craig, you talked about how, you know, when we think about our system, our constitution, we have to think in terms of history, layers of history mm. being built on top of one another. It's not about logic. We, you know, we didn't have some kind of system where people came down and just came up with like yeah, kind we're of not principles the of justice. We're not the French. Right. Um <laughs> But I think, let's go right back. I mean, like, to what this is, what we're talking about here. We're not the French. We're a parliamentary system, not a presidential system. Mm -hmm. So what is a parliamentary system?
2: Well, I think it's important to differentiate it by what maybe a a lot of Canadians first think of when they think of a system of government. And even our courts kind of still use this language. Um, They think typically of a presidential congressional system. They think of Governments having branches, so an executive branch and a legislative branch and a judicial branch that share in, in governing power. And when they think government, they think those three branches kind of working together and often being in, in, in counterbalance to one another. But our system and the par- a parliamentary system is a little bit different, right, in the sense that there is no uh, standalone president uh, that combines the head of state and head of government Uh, They'll have typically a separation between those roles. And really, it's a system in which the head of government is ultimately accountable to the elected assembly uh, and that the – unlike a presidential system, you don't have a separate office holder who is popularly elected and has their own kind of democratic legitimacy against the, the legislative body.
1: Right. So I mean, the way I used to teach it in class was that, well, in Canada, the executive sits in the legislature. Is that the right way to think about it? Or is that kind say, of an Americanization? I,
2: the way I would say it, and I, I'm a purist on these things, but I think it's in, in a parliamentary context, in the Westminster context in particular, it's better to say they're drawn from the legislature. Because even when they're sitting in the legislature, they have, in some cases, a different capacity. They're not necessarily executive office holders when they're in the legislature, but. Ultimately, our system, the organic nature of our system is such that it has evolved such that for myriad reasons that we'll discuss, it was important for the monarch to pick as their ministers people who could manage parliament, and therefore they had to be parliamentarians.
0: Yeah, and to, and to sort of put a, a, a bow on that, that's what we would call responsible government. And so as responsible government is this thing that maybe people learned about in grade 10 civics or in their history class because... I learned
1: it from a, the Heritage Minute.
0: <laughs> right, yes, because <Right. laughs> we, there were two rebellions fought in uh, lower and upper Canada in, in order to facilitate the creation of responsible government, which by 1837 was an established principle in the United Kingdom, but which not was not replicated in British North America. So the, the principle that which Phil described is the idea of those exercising or wielding what we would call executive power are accountable or, more technically, responsible to the legislature. And the best way to ensure that that's true is to ensure that those who exercise that executive power are in fact in the legislature, are obliged to answer to the legislature, and most particularly in terms of the nuclear option, they can only continue to hold their executive office with the confidence of the legislature, which is the origin of the idea of the so-called Confidence Convention, which listeners are probably familiar with. The idea that if you cannot command a voice, the majority of voices in the House of Commons, that is a majority of votes, if they vote no confidence, then the, the obligation on the part of the prime minister and his or her ministry, there's only two things they can do in that circumstance. Number one, resign, in which case uh, the uh, the head of state, the governor general typically in our context would uh, would determine whether there's someone else who can command confidence or, more likely, that they would seek a dissolution of parliament for the purposes of triggering another election so that the question as to who can govern would be returned to the people for purposes of uh, democratic legitimacy.
1: This is going to be non- another fun thing that we're going to see in the Brexit episode, which will be coming up. But uh, just to go forward, um, you know, but we have parliaments, but there, and, and of course we're, we're a parliament, we have our monarch as the head of state, Uh, people may have noticed that there's this woman who's on their their currency. Uh, But in other countries, they have parliaments, but they're republics. Did you want to talk about the difference between those two? Yeah,
2: when we talk about the Westminster system, I think it's just useful to say, well, okay, it's not just that it's a parliamentary system, because you can have parliamentary systems that are not Westminster systems. So what is it that's unique about a Westminster parliament? Well, getting back to this question of codification and evolution, you'll have a number of uh, parliamentary systems that are very codified and rely largely on principles that are well enumerated uh, in in either uh, basic law or constitution or other things like that. So the rules are fairly well set out and they tend to have been created, right? They tend to have been enumerated at some stage. Whereas what sets the Westminster system apart, and it uh, has to do a little bit with what we were talking about in the context of Brexit, is the fact that it has evolved. It's an organic system. Much of it has not been written down or in a planned fashion, but rather it it developed through a series of, of interactions between some of its major institutions. And even today, some of the core powers, right, that, those, uh, that office holders exercised are not codified anywhere. They're of the common law. So even this question of that we saw today of Brexit, the power to prorogue, where does it come from? It's nested in the common law. So to understand a Westminster system, you have to go back to understanding its organic development from its medieval roots. So as a political scientist, a historical institutionalist, my take on the way I approach it is to always say, if I want to understand the institutions today, I need to go back to their origins and then see how they've evolved and to see where their origins still matter.
0: And in keeping with the historical focus, the common law is effectively traditional principles that are not necessarily codified in anything that resembles a statute, but rather are viewed as springing from the traditional practices of the past as typically reified and discovered by the so-called common law courts. And so to say that the prerogative is a common law uh, concept is to say that the prerogative is the historical Residue of the monarchical powers once absolute in the Middle Ages. Uh, and the existence of that, the persistence of that prerogative, is something that the common law courts will adjudicate often. They will say, look, that's still a prerogative power. Um, and that actually is an issue that arose in this case uh, that was decided today. The role of the courts in trying to say, does this prerogative continue to exist? And the reason why the courts perform that function is tied again to this other concept of parliamentary supremacy, and so they're all kind of webbed together, in a way that is unusually elegant, right? And so when you look at this, it looks like a bundle of threads all in a Gordian knot. Um, but when you start to see the hap, it, it looks like it was created in a haphazard manner. It looks it's like kind a of bunch thing- of documents it- stapled together, right, right? So it's the you know as, as once was said, I think probably in relation to the British Constitution, it's the sort of thing that. Uh, that uh, doesn't work in theory, but doesn't practice. All right, and and so w- w- one of the interesting things as you study this is as you begin to appreciate the wisdom of past expediency and and the the compromises that constituted a system that's been remarkably stable and pliable enough that it evolves with time, and that makes you a big fan of Edmund Burke, actually.
1: <laughs> My so, so this is this is a big shout out to all the Burke fans out there. Um, but you said a word there that I think I'd like to explore just a little bit more. You said monarch. What is the difference between the monarch and the crown? Because we hear these two words. Is it the same thing, or are they different?
2: Well, effectively, the monarch is the personification of something we call the crown. Uh, And the crown has many different purposes in the Westminster system, which reflects the fact that in the past, all authority would have derived from the monarch. So at a time when authority was personalized, and effectively you drew on who you were, and that represented your authority. When
1: sovereignty meant the sovereign. Uh,
2: yeah, it meant a, an individual, right? And their their authority and the, the ties of fidelity and loyalty that, that were owed to them. But over time, for a variety of reasons, notably in order to ensure continuity of government and in order to ensure continuity of law, there was a bifurcation basically made where you could differentiate between the office of the crown and the office holder. Um, and in effect monarch today again personifies both but you can still make a differentiation and law between them and it's part of the reason that the crown can serve so many different purposes so in the westminster system and then just to get back to why we're so unique and different the crown is our concept of the state so we when we say Her Majesty in Right of Canada, or in this case Her Majesty in Right of Pod, maybe we are, we're sovereign. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the like uh, the idea are. is mm-hmm. that our, the state is actually a person in Canada, and it, that's a, a an odd kind of common law thing. Um, similarly, you can have the Crown being the executive, and the Crown is also part of Parliament. You can have uh, the Queen of Canada being a separate legal person from the Queen of the United Kingdom. Uh, you can have uh, the Crown represented in the provinces and in the, at the federal level in Canada. So it's really, I would argue, the linchpin of a lot of how the system has evolved is how we kind of understand this concept of the crown. But the only note of caution I would say is don't simply think of it as the monarch because it can lead you down paths where you say, well, that's a powerless person who doesn't do mm-hmm. anything. Well, the, the more interesting aspect of the crown is how it, it enables other actors, such as prime ministers, and how it uh, can be checked because it is an institution by the courts under the rule of law.
0: So the the, the historical basis, and, and you alluded to this, so if you go back to, say, 1066, right, which, of course, everyone really should because that's the point at which William the Conqueror conquered Saxon England. You know, at that point, the, the, the monarch it was very personalized, so the king or queen in British tradition almost exclusively, at, at least initially, the king, played basically three roles, right? So lawgiver, warlord, and religious figure. And uh, it was very personalized, the role of that individual. But over time, of course, the role of the monarch as lawgiver becomes the principal preoccupation for our conversation, right? So when I teach public law, it's like, we're not going to worry too much about their religious status. We're not going to worry too much about the, the warlord status. Although, frankly, their role as a warlord is one of the drivers for the ultimate evolution of parliament because those wars were very expensive and they needed revenue, right? So the extraction of revenue actually generated resistance from the landed elite, which culminated in the creation, ultimately, of something resembling parliament. But, but the role as law lawgiver was uh, basically their absolute capacity to set the standards which governed in their society, and that was called the prerogative, right? So the origin of the concept of prerogative is the absolute plenary power of the monarch in their personal capacity to impose their dictates.
1: What's a plenary power?
0: So uh, 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 so an apex power, right? At, at, at the it's absolute an apex power. Right, at the very top, at the so <laughs> the th- they, they are the lawgiver, there's no one who can second guess them except God. Ah, okay. Right? And so the idea that they were subject to law was a relatively alien concept in the early medieval period, subject to some caveats, right? So in early Saxon history, where you still had monarchs, there was an expectation that uh, uh, that the monarch would consult with the the great landowners, the barons, for perp- for important matters of policy, but also for purposes of extracting revenue, taxation. And so, when William conquered England, that that tradition of constituting a great council, who would be consulted for purposes of, for example, generating revenue, that tradition, that norm or expectation. Was followed largely for expedient reasons. Um, so, uh, so,
1: so, the, so the the monarch was effectively only God can judge me before mm-hmm. um, hip hop.
0: Right, and so and so you only get if you want to talk about benchmarks in English history, which we inherit. You only get to a point where one of the most important, in fact, probably the most elemental public law principle, which is at play in our system, the concept of the rule of law. You only get to the rule of law. Uh, when you get to 1215, right? And, and right. the Magna Carta.
1: So, okay. So let's, um, I think one of the things we wanted to do in this podcast was do a sketchy march through history. Right. But just to explain how we got here from there. Um, so 1215, Magna Carta... Um, you can go. See, there's a copy of it in the National Archives in the United States. Yeah, it's
0: really unimpressive. And it, first of all, you can't read it because it's all in Latin. Yeah. But if you read it, it's an obscure list of mostly medieval preoccupations that really consumed the the, the great barons of the time. John was a relatively weak. It's a monarch. bit like a
1: festivus. It was a list. Of, it was the airing of the grievances. The airing of the grievances. There's <laughs>
0: some stuff in there that uh, that that resonates to a modern audience, right? So Phil's
1: shaking his head. I don't think he likes it. No, analogy. I do. I, I I love
2: it actually. It's great. <laughs> okay, I <It's, great>. uh, <laughs> just I'm imagining George Costanza's father. I was just (laughs) yelling at King John. Yelling with (laughs) a pole.
0: So there's a there's a conception of of cruel and unusual treatment. So there's some kind of proto human rights like concepts, but largely it was about the balance between the barons and them and the monarch. But but the the most important principle that was established and people can overstate it, right? So the Magna Carta with so the sort of this I'll call it Whiggish history. So Whiggish history is the idea that there was a natural progress that led naturally to the end objective uh, through a, a natural sequence of events, and it wasn't just haphazard and 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 is largely it accidental? Right. Yeah. Panglossian. Right. right? <laughs> so uh, the Whiggish view of the Magna Carta was that it it established this definitive benchmark. The monarch was subordinated to the law because the Magna Carta bound the monarch. Now, the reality, of course, is that the Magna Carta was canceled and reissued several times over the course of the next century or, uh, or more. But the bottom line is it became this, this uh, almost quasi-mythical uh, norm, if you will. And there are very few other societies, by the way, in Western Europe uh, or Europe generally which have an equivalent. I believe that there's an equivalent concept that, uh, that was quite important in parts of Eastern Europe. Uh, it didn't quite stick in the same way as it did in, in the Hungary. United Kingdom. Right. So, so the idea that you could subordinate the monarch to the law, that was novel. And it became then a, a preoccupation, part of the mythology in, in English political history thereafter. Honored in the breach often, but nevertheless with enduring cultural relevance.
1: So, So okay, so that's the start. I mean, a lot of times you hear like the starting point, the first constitutional document, Magna Carta, Latin document. No one can really understand these days. But um, one of the things you guys have met talked about is the fact that you know one of the driving changes to this is in fact the war powers of the monarchy, which of course you know they need to fight wars, and there were no shortage of them from my sketchy understanding of medieval period. But um, and and so, but to fight wars, you need taxation you mm. need money in order to do so and so this was a transformative element uh from the magna P- carta period onwards
2: well it's really the the what i would say the regularization of, of parliament as an institution right where
1: this this body that william the conqueror yeah, adopted so, so it
2: would have been called the great council
0: yeah the uh, and the regis a, the Curly yeah. regis would have been yeah. a small subset of the great council yeah that eventually became essentially the king's cronies. But the yeah. Great Council was the, uh, effectively the, the barons of the land who would come together and effectively have to consent to taxation.
1: Is there still a crony position today? Because I would be a great crony. <laughs>
0: Just well, <saying>. It's called <laughs> the Privy Council. Yeah, we'll, we'll,
2: we'll get there in a minute. Uh, but it, I, I think it's important to recognize these, these two kind of parallel institutions that are evolving more or less in parallel, but that are going to be more consequential when they kind of come together. Uh, in the 18th and 19th century, but the the idea that ultimately you need to call together this parliament in order to be properly funded, uh, and as importantly, when we enter into the Tudor era, uh, when you have a confrontation, getting back to this question of the supremacy of the law, who decides whose law is supreme in England, and for Henry VIII. In combating uh, the Pope and trying to secure his uh, divorce, this is a critical question, and so Parliament not only becomes a means of getting money under the in the Tudor period, it also becomes a means of establishing legislative supremacy contra canon law and papal dictate over England. And this is, I think, it's important to recognize just how key this is because our entire concept of parliamentary sovereignty in England can be tied to this debate about two types of law and whose law is supreme
1: so to to make that more oshawa i would suggest so you're what you're saying is the fact that henry wants a divorce pope says no uh so papal law is canonical law like religious law uh, so henry turns to parliament and says i want a divorce well, he and, he, he, and parliament's he, like okay well
2: he, he turns to parliament and makes him does a couple of things number one he makes himself creates his own church Through parliamentary statute. I mean, that's pretty significant, right? Validates the Reformation. Right. So not only uh, do my laws matter more than the Pope, I'm going to create an entirely new set of, (laughs) uh, entirely new church structure, the Church of England, and I'm going to head it. And equally important, then, the laws that are promulgated by Parliament are going to be the supreme laws of this realm of England. Right,
1: and so, then more important than whatever some guy in Rome saying
2: exactly. And I think it's important to recognize, and this is a little bit uh, to to discuss Craig's point about the Whigist tradition, where there's always this idea that Parliament uh, is just encroaching upon the monarchy, and that's the natural progression of it. In reality, it's a little bit messier because, in this instance, for instance, and we're going to see this uh, uh, at other points in time, the monarch and Parliament are actually working together for common purposes. And in certain instances, um, over time, Parliament has often served the purposes of the Crown. Uh, and it gets back even to the underlying, you know, institutional design questions. Uh, we we don't always have a system where the legislature and the executive are checking one another in a Westminster tradition. They tend to work best or most efficiently, efficiently when they're actually working together. So it's, that's a clear instance in, in the Tudor era of a monarch using Parliament to further their own ends, but the consequence of that, as we're going to see in the next era, the Stuart era, is that that backfires on the monarchy.
0: Yeah, and of course Elizabeth I also used Parliament to validate policy as well, and so Parliament was used expediently. And one of the reasons, of course, that Parliament often had shared interests with the monarch is it wasn't a representative body, right? This is we're not talking democracy here. We're talking about uh, a cadre of the elite. Uh, and, of course, by the time we get to the Stuarts and, and even the Tudors before them, we had the emergence of two houses of parliament, right? So the, the Great Council was initially the lords, the barons, but with the change in economic fortunes in England, when you had more and more economic uh, progress and economic development at the urban level, the the so-called freemen... Which was the, the medieval term to describe merchants and the like became more economically the middle class. The middle class. Well, yeah. And those wishing
1: <laughs> to join them? <laughs> yeah, <right>. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, little election so, humor. <laughs> so, so
0: that class of individuals became more important for financial reasons, and so if they, they, they were saying, "Look, once upon a time was all the barons being taxed on their lands, and that was a source of revenue, but now with commercial activity, taxation implicated the so-called freemen, and so in those circumstances, the, the, this tradition of representation became important, and you had the development of what we now call the House of commons. And so the two chambers really reflect two different economic classes. But the commons itself was not representative, right? And so this was not uh, a system of democracy by any measure. This was not a system of universal, even partial uh, suffrage. And so you had essentially appointments um, often controlled by the landed elite.
1: So, So Phil, how do we get to a point? So we're seeing like kind of the nascent parliament emerge how do we get to the point where the you know you're and you were saying that they work together? So how do we get to the point where Parliament kills the king? <laughs> well, <laughs> that, this, that seems to be not working together.
2: Well, this is the thing. You, we often have these inflection points in the development of Westminster where major institutional change happens when Parliament and the Crown uh, are at odds. Right. Uh, seeing that today, uh, but effectively uh, over time, the uh, stewards chose to govern more or less alone and found kind of creative ways of getting money, right, without having to consult Parliament. But they f- found themselves in an increasing number of wars that required them to uh, assemble uh, the House of Commons and Parliament. Scotland in parliament. and Ireland. Uh, yes, in order to get money. And what's interesting there uh, in particular is the fact that this is happening at a time of particular religious strife as well. So the parliamentarians that they gather together are not only concerned, having they have a long list of grievances, but there's also religious tension which is fairly palpable in England at the time. The end result is uh, Charles I is not particularly happy with uh, the demands that are being requested by the House of Commons in exchange for money. So he tries once again to govern without them. But he has to call them back though because he is out of money. And to make a long story short, they disagree so vehemently that we end up in a war between uh, parliamentarians and the king. Uh, the parliamentarians win, uh, they behead him, they create a dictatorship effectively under Oliver Cromwell. Once Oliver Cromwell passes, the parliamentarians saying, "You know what? This is probably not the best system. Let's call back uh, Charles's son." You know, what's
0: England without a monarch? <laughs> so
2: <laughs> so they, res- they they restore Charles uh, Second. Charles Charles II. So his son, and he attempts to effectively recreate. Really, what was he, that
1: just an attempt though, just to keep stability going?
2: No, I think it's it's fair to say that it really was after a long kind of dreary time being ruled by a Puritan dictator. And an ineffective parliament. That you know what? Let's uh, let's go back to a, a simpler time, as it were, a better time. And uh, Charles II make came,
1: England great again.
2: Well, yeah. I mean, kind of came back and said, "Look, I mean, let's uh, let's work together again. Let's avoid the conflicts of the past." But at the end of the, it's still the, those tensions are still unresolved. So he still gets into conflict with Parliament. Uh, he prevails in part because he's uh, quite the charmer. Uh, and ultimately he's not that much of a radical, but he tries to reestablish to a significant degree the idea of the crown as not fully subservient to parliament. Divine right of kings. Yeah. But at the end of the day, it's his brother. Hell of a drug. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) Uh, It's his brother who, as a Catholic king, uh, getting back to those religious tensions again, when he pushes certain buttons that Parliament simply can't accept in terms of trying to remove certain restrictions on Catholic office holders, and when he uh, has a child and the idea that there would be a succession of Catholics, at some point it's just not palpable anymore for the parliamentarians, so he is said to have abdicated because he runs away, and Parliament then calls upon uh, his daughter and her husband, William and Mary, to form a uh, to to come in and replace him on the throne, so he's and we call that the
1: glorious restor- uh, Sorry, the glorious gl- revolution. glorious
2: revolution. And the, the only point I want to make about it here, which is kind of interesting, because we tend to to say that that's the point at which uh, the crown becomes fully subservient to Parliament, which is true in a formal sense. So Parliament, so Parliament at that point is able to declare uh, any prerogative null and void. They can abolish prerogative powers. Uh, But fundamentally, uh, what's equally important here is that they choose to keep the monarchical structure. So the, and this is what I would call the emergence of the executive crown, right? So the crown is still retained as uh, subservient to parliament, but a crown that is still empowered and a a crown that is still expected to work with the parliament provided the authority that parliament chooses to give it. So we have things like parliament deciding on a standing army. We have things... um, Uh, like Parliament being increasingly expected to control who advises uh, the monarch. So it's really a transition point, but getting back to this notion of cooperation, the Glorious Revolution is not only uh, a declaration of Parliament's supremacy over the Crown, but also, if you look at it from the other direction, an acknowledgement that you still want to have a balanced constitution. So Parliament's not attempting to govern, it's attempting to control the monarchy, but the Crown still governs, and increasingly, as we'll discuss, through ministers.
0: So the when I teach public law, I do teach the Glorious Revolution and, and specifically the Bill of Rights of 1689 is, is an important benchmark that uh, concretely restores that Magna Carta cultural tradition of the rule of law and the idea that the monarch is subordinated to law. Because one way to look at it is William and Mary assume the crown on an almost quasi-contractual basis. They agree to the Bill of Rights. And so the, the, the persistence of the monarchy is at the sufferance of Parliament at some level. And, and Parliament's already demonstrated on the battlefield that it's willing to displace the monarch. And so there's a condition, if you will, on the exercise of monarchical power uh, at this point. More than that, it's, it's well established by the Bill of Rights that the monarch is limited in, in his or her capacity to meddle in the affairs of Parliament. But also that parliamentary statutes, to go back to Phil's point, a, a statute will prevail over the prerogative. And so the prerogative, those prerogative powers, remember that was the the monarchical absolute power, the power that was available to the monarch to dictate uh, rules that govern their society. To the extent that that prerogative persists, it does so at the sufferance of parliament in the sense that parliament is free to displace that prerogative through statutory law. And so the from a public law perspective, a statute will always prevail over the prerogative. Uh, that's why, with the passage of time, the remaining prerogatives, that zone or which the prerogative applies as a source of law becomes uh, narrower and narrower to the point where in Canada, for example, there are very few prerogative powers that are
1: left. So, Craig, Phil, we have now restored the monarchy. Um,
0: a subordinated monarchy. A subordinated
1: right? monarchy. Right. They, they, but they're still looking great. Still, power, still
0: powerful, still governing. Yeah. Still, still, still powerful, still, still governing. Still personal exercise of monarchical yeah. power, right? Uh, but but one in which the monarch is not no longer absolute. So I would say that we're not talking about a constitutional monarchy.
2: And w- what Montesquieu will call the balanced constitution, right? So this idea that at the end of the day you have uh, a parliament, you have a house of lords, but you also have a monarch, kind of all kind of governing together. And as we're going to see in the next... Is this, uh,
1: say, is this where checks and balances comes from in the U.S. context?
2: Yeah, I mean, they're referring back to this original arrangement, which is why when, when people say that the U.S. has... Uh, particular type of constitutional construct around separation of powers, what they ultimately did is recreate the British constitution of the eighteenth century, except with an elected monarch.
0: And 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 codified. Yeah. Right. Unlike the British system, which, of course, is an amalgam of different principles, some of which are statutory, but not codified in a, in a form that's difficult to amend.
1: But you mentioned some of these principles and ideas at the beginning yeah. of the podcast, the idea of ministers, responsible mm. government, constitutional Yes, we convention. haven't got to that yet. Yeah, I mean, like, why don't we finish the podcast by talking maybe about where some of these ideas come from. Um, you know, because they, they weren't just invented.
0: Sure. So, so far we've discussed uh, the concept of rule of law, which is really the glue that holds the system together. Right. And so, just to amplify that, the rule of law means that there are basically three things. If you look at our contemporary jurisprudence, there has to be law. Right. right? Makes sense. That everyone is equal before the law. Right. And that's the sources of public power have to be entrenched or embedded in the law somewhere. So whenever the government exercises power, they have to be able to trace it somewhere in law. Now in most cases, that in, in the modern context, that's going to be statutory law, but there are these handful of instances where the state will say that the source of the law is prerogative. So those are the three sort of cardinal principles of the rule of law. Other people will say you can inflate that and talk about other sort of more human rights-like issues, but at, at base that's what we're talking about. We've also talked about parliamentary supremacy, the idea that Parliament is in fact the supreme lawgiver in our system to the point where it can actually displace the prerogative further. And in an absolute parliamentary sovereignty perspective, parliament can do whatever it wants unchecked, right? And so that means it can, can, through the passage of legislation, do whatever, there is no check or balance there uh, because there's no constitutionalized concept of, say, human rights.
1: And we've also uh, talked about... At least initially. Right, and one of the things we've also talked about is prerogative.
0: Right. And so the prerogative is that sort of re residue of monarchical power, which was once absolute and has now shrunk. And I, when I do this in my class, it's like the shrinking circle.
1: When you um, say residue, I think of stuff left in my shower. But well,
0: I, you know, what's true. But I, I like to think of it as a residue because it really is. It's a leftover. Um, mm-hmm. I do you
1: disagree, Craig? Yeah, uh, I, mean,
2: uh, I have a slightly different view of it, which is that ultimately it, it's shrunken down to what I would say our core executive competency. And we we find these kind of similar things in other systems. So, getting back to what I was saying about the U.S. ending up with uh, an elected monarch, the U.S. the U.S. president <laughs> with a gold plated yeah, toilet. Indeed, there's a lot of side eye <laughs> happening there. <laughs> there is. but the the U.S. president also has a number of these prerogatives, executive prerogatives. Right. And as our system has evolved, and I, I guess this is my my slight disagreement with Craig over time since. Uh, 1689, what I would argue has happened is the, sp- the prerogative has been narrowed, 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 but what's left over has, have, has become transformed into what we would consider areas of constitutional executive competency, right? So in the Canadian context, which we'll get to a bit further, it's less so in the British one, but ultimately these are powers which Parliament doesn't intrude on because they think you need discretion or there's a reason why the executive needs to be able to act with greater leeway here. So I think in the next few weeks we'll get to a point where we're going to probably have this discussion about, okay, what are they today? So I would argue that they now serve a slightly different purpose than simply residual powers. To to some extent they end up being powers that, at least from even our Supreme Court's point of view, are areas where the, the executive is just meant to be able to have a little bit more leeway over what it does.
0: So, so, Phil and I are going to have fun with this because I have a different view on that. Okay. Right, so, we'll, we'll, we'll suspend... Is the, this is going
1: to be the nerdiest he, fight he, of all time. I, I still think
0: it's history, not logic, right? So And so, the, the juxtaposition of that is the royal prerogative that relates to the issuance of passports, right? And so, your passport is issued under a prerogative power. Um, and there's nothing really inherently different about... That prerogative than say something that would be embedded in statute. And in fact, actually, the issuance of a passport is done under a passport order that looks and walks and talks a lot like a statute, but it's actually a prerogative instrument. Yeah. So anyway, we'll have this kind of debate going forward. But uh, but you asked the question. You know, what's kind of left um, in this conversation for today's purposes is conscious of the time. And so there's actually two other principles I think we need to uh, discuss before we sort of end this podcast and talk about the, how Canada is a little bit different and how it's the same next podcast. The one we haven't talked about we started with it is the the role of the courts, right? And so there's this concept of judicial independence, which is so elemental to the way our system works. That, too, originates in this, this sort of early modern period in English history. Not long after the Bill of Rights in 1689, there's something called the Acts of Settlement of 1701, uh, which, amongst other things, was supposed to establish the uh, the the way that there would be succession between the monarchs of England, and actually to preclude Catholics ever assuming the throne. So, ironically, here the origin of our Parliament and our system is taxation and d- religious discrimination. Right? Those are the two
1: drivers.
2: <laughs> <Right>. um, but <laughs>
1: <laughs> and based on on a lot of severed heads. Right. Is from what well, I can and, tell. and
2: I just want to end on, on on something uh, the role of ministers and how it ties back to the history of the system because. At the end of the day, um, getting back to the rule of law, and here's really where you see a, almost theological mix that we're still left with, that we've inherited namely, this idea that the monarch could do no wrong, right? And so even though they are subject to the law, when they err, somebody else has to take responsibility for it. So when the queen does something stupid, somebody else has to take the blame because ultimately it's her laws and her courts and for right. lots it of... It's the manifestation of exactly, the dignity of the state. Precisely. So yeah. the, the, the dignity of the state can't act incorrectly. I mean, it, it can never. It can err, but it can't be wrong. So who errs? And this is the interesting question. So over time, what's developed was this idea that the the monarch would be held responsible through its servants. So over time, that meant ministers. And increasingly, this doctrine of what we call ministerial responsibility starts with when the queen or king does something stupid or wrong, you have to be able to blame somebody. So you start with ministers that in the uh, 17th century, you impeach and behead for their wrongdoing as opposed to the king. But over time, that has gradually become, starting in the 18th century, as the monarchs started withdrawing from government were no longer directly involved in government. That meant that you need the ministers effectively started being the ones making the decision and advising the monarch to follow it. So they increasingly started taking that space. So ministers became those exercising and advising crown powers as the monarch withdrew from actual day-to-day governing. And then that coincides as well with you need to have a parliament that provides regular funding and regular laws. So as the state grew in importance it became more important for the monarch to select people as ministers who could manage parliament. And that then leads to And have their confidence. Have their confidence. So the two kind of come together with this idea that not only do ministers take responsibility for all acts of the crown, which effectively means that they're the executive, so they exercise executive power and are held responsible for the exercise of that power, but then they have to be held to account to parliament for its exercise which then leads to this idea of they should be embedded within parliament. And there is that, that efficient secret, that buckle, that fusion that we talk about when we talk about the Westminster system, namely that those who exercise executive power and are responsible for it are accountable to the House of Commons for its exercise. Right. That's the responsible government, which we started on. And right.
1: so basically what we need to do next week then is to look at this system – which now has ministers embedded in a uh, parliament that is based on certain principles like rule of law and uh, responsible government. Parliamentary, and ha- supremacy parliamentary supremacy. With
0: a parallel system of independent judges.
1: In a, in a, in a monarch who's kind of hanging out but not. Um, it feels giving me kind of a weird look there, but that's fine. Um, how did that then come to Canada? Right.
0: Yeah, so it's, a, it's an absolutely fascinating story because, uh, as Phil mentioned at the outset, it's about a constitutional, written constitutional framework, which actually doesn't ever codify any of the principles we've talked about, is busy with a whole bunch of other things, the Constitution Act of 1867, that looks like the sort of preoccupations that would make the Stuart Kings quite happy, right? right? And so the irony, and this is what I caution my students, if you read the 1867 Act, it looks like an absolute monarch or something close to it. Uh, but uh, you cannot read our written constitution literally.
1: <laughs> you have to understand it historically.
0: You have to understand it historically, and you have to realize that there are provisions in there that really do not do what it is that it looks like they do, in part because of the colonial framework in which we uh, we also grew up. So we'll suspend the, that conversation and come back to it for Ooh, next time. Oh, is day.
1: that like a joke, like suspending parliament? No? <laughs> yeah, no, and okay. we'll prorogue this discussion. Oh, we'll prorogue <laughs> the discussion, right. Until next time. Until the next session. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, guys.
0: Thanks very much, everyone. Thank you.